Welcome to the Transformation Talks podcast, in-depth conversations on transformation with Rajiv Dingra, founder and CEO of RDNX Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Transformation Talks podcast, another edition and another guest with us tonight. Uh, we are very excited uh, to have uh, someone who has uh, been part as an entrepreneur and now also looking at venture stage investments, early stage investments. And his, interestingly, he's also working with PhDs. So uh, introducing Mr. Nicholas Russell, uh, who is an entrepreneur in residence on the Conception X program. We will talk a lot more about Conception X going forward. Uh, just a short note as of now, Conception X creates deep tech startups from PhD research. In 2019, Conception X teams raised over 5 million pounds in venture investment and are working with the leading companies like Amazon, Barclays, and Microsoft. Uh, Nicholas has an MBA from Oxford, has spent time as a management consultant in renewable energy for five years, has worked across China and Europe, focusing on electric vehicles and renewable generation manufacturing. Uh, he has launched a real estate startup in London in the past and is currently focused on working with early stage entrepreneurs and venture capital firms, raising seed capital funding for new deep tech propositions. So please give a big, big round of Welcome to our guest, Nicholas Russell. Nicholas, welcome to Transformation Talks. Hi, Rajiv. How are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm great, Nicholas. Nicholas, this is a very interesting uh, role and company you are part of. I think uh, to start off our conversation, uh, tell us a bit more about Conception X and you know what is venture science? We've heard of venture capital. We've heard of venture funding. Uh, you know, when you go on the Conception X website, one one reads venture science. And when did PhD started running, uh, you know, startups in that context? It's a very interesting uh, concept and and story you have there. So enlighten us about what you do, uh, you know, and what is Conception X? Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, Conception X is a deep tech um, venture program that was originally started at UCL, uh, University College London, a couple years ago. And Conception X looked at um, the PhD research programs around the UK, starting at UCL, but now uh, around the UK as a whole. And it saw that in these PhD programs are uh, a huge number of people who, uh, they are STEM PhD researchers, they are working on uh, you know, at the edge of technology in a lot of ways, they are well versed in uh, the tools, you know, whether that be big data, machine learning, AI, uh, genetics, genomics, uh, or any of the other kind of deep tech fields. Um, Conception X, specifically, what we do is we work with them during their PhD program. So we work with them while they are PhD students, while they're in their research labs, uh, the Conception X program happens um, while, they're, while they're studying. And the idea there is they have access to, you know, some of the world's leading facilities, the world's leading laboratories, they're on, uh, you know, academic programs. 
And so what we do is we work with them to see if they have an idea that's commercializable. So if some part of their research or their thesis or something they're doing uh, lends itself to being the kind of inspirational seed of a startup. Wow, interesting. And um, how does this then uh, sort of translate? Has there been a, a couple of uh, ideas that were at, let's say, research stage that have, you know, been uh, taken uh, into a startup mode as of now? Uh, yes, yeah, we, we, we have a number of uh, teams that have graduated and are now building. I mean, we have one called Rocco that's working in the uh, quantum chemistry space. They're a recent partner to AWS's uh, online quantum service. We have another one called Turing Tech, which is doing kind of very advanced uh, ML and AI algorithms. Uh, originally, that was applied to financial trading. Now it's being applied to uh, data centers and large big data installations. We have another one called Symbiotica, which is measuring uh, liquidity in public financial markets and optimizing uh, customer trading strategies. We have one called Enteromics, which is a a hardware, kind of hardware software play that's looking at uh, the gut health microbiome and doing some more advanced measurement there. Um, the yield of our program, we're different from other programs. You know, if you look at Y Combinator, Techstars, or any of the, the kind of what I would say are established accelerator programs, you know, those take teams uh, which are ready to kind of have a launch. They focus heavily on SaaS. You know, and it's really about over the period of three months, getting them to that next step, which is often a pre-seed or seed investment. Uh, we look at it very differently. So we have an intake of probably between 70 to 100 teams this year. We divide those into uh, project stage and startup stage. The project stage are PhD researchers who have the skills. They're very interested in what entrepreneurship is about and the process of commercializing technology. Uh, we use their research essentially as a foil and we have a training program set up for them. Uh, there's an initial boot camp around uh, technology readiness levels, you know, where their technology is and kind of an assessment of their team strengths and gaps. Uh, and then there's a three to four month education program that I believe we're up to about 14 half day sessions. And that really covers every area of building and launching a technology product. Uh, once again, that's a product, uh, that's a pro or that's, sorry, that's a project track of Conception X. Then there's the startup track and the startup track is for the more advanced teams. Uh, those teams usually come to us as teams, as formed teams. Uh, although not always, we do accept uh, individual uh, innovators into that program. Uh, for the startup teams, they have the skills. Some of them will have an MVP built. Others will have roadmaps to MVPs. Uh, and really, for them, they, do, they complete the training program, as do the project teams. However, for the startup teams, we also add very intensive one-on-one -on -one coaching uh, from both the business side and the technology side, uh, looking at getting them to some kind of a deliverable before the end of the program. Uh, we have a demo day at the end where everybody showcases. So the project teams showcase how far they've developed uh, their project work and the startup teams show how far they've developed their products. And um, yeah, I mean, then that's kind of it in a nutshell. That's 
very 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 interesting so how how is it different from uh, and and being an entrepreneur yourself uh, how is it different to work with uh, you know uh, researchers and and scientists and phd's uh, vis-a-vis working with you know the early stage entrepreneurial technologists so as to say uh, what is what is distinctly different uh, in these two uh, let's say uh, uh, you know kinds of uh, people uh, and how are their approach different uh, uh, to startups so as to say right i am i'm glad you asked that question because i think it is a it's a very important distinction i mean first of all deep tech you know if you <laughs> if you look up deep tech what is deep tech uh the best definition i have for deep tech is it's it's hard tech right so this can be uh physical sciences this can be you know innovations like electro optics or something to where there is a a a real true uh engineering or scientific innovation uh which in my view involves quite a high degree of risk right so th- these are often not necessarily things you can lean business model canvas yourself into creating right they're they're actual laboratory innovations or some kind of uh actual real step now if we take the other side of it and let's look at like a normal team and a normal accelerator i would categorize the majority of that being business model innovation you know a business model innovation i would couch as things you build on aws whether that's you know and these could be huge businesses you know whether you look at um you know amazon zoom shopify kickstarter coinbase you know in in a lot of these cases the the innovation of those businesses wasn't necessarily something technical and hard below the surface rather they used uh an assemblage of the existing components to kind of create a new business model a new interface new user experience you know a new new kind of product offering right okay. so so i would take that to be kind of your 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 normal startup those are the saas startups that we know and love that's where we see a lot of action out of the valley uh i would couch us on this to be a bit earlier than that we're dealing in more high risk stuff you know we're dealing in things that are less certain where there's not necessarily an immediate path to market or revenue uh and therefore i think when we're looking at what our program does for those deep tech teams you know it's really about how do you connect the dots between a laboratory innovation some kind of a, a commercialization of that that's that's fascinating it it sounds like you're really in deep in the trenches when it comes to deep tech you know getting your hands dirty with uh, uh with technology with innovators whose work uh, possibly may uh, transform the next uh, couple of dec- or couple of decades or maybe even a century because that's the kind of early uh, risk and uh, you know innovation that you are uh, you know working with uh, would that be correct to say Yeah, I think there's two strands there. I mean, one is the technologies themselves. I mean, we we are working with a lot of the the most advanced uh cutting-edge technologies in universities. So we see quantum, we see blockchain, we see AI, we see medtech, we see health tech, we see genetics, we see genomics, we see CRISPR, you know, we really see uh this whole portfolio of technologies. And you know one big difference there is often you know if you look at the lean model and you listen to kind of the silicon valley canon they say don't build a product without or or don't build uh, a solution for a problem that doesn't exist whereas you know often in deep tech 
you're, you're, you're building, you're building a, a clean innovation. You know, you're building something that doesn't necessarily have a market today. It's more that if you push forward this technology, uh, what are the potentials it creates? What can it do if it were to sit in the market, right? So I think, I think uh, on the technology side, that's very accurate and very different. The second thing is, you know, another important thing we do, while, you know, startups may account for probably 20 to 30% of our total cohort uh, volume, you know, the, the overall, be it the, the 20 to 30% or the, the rest, you know, what we're doing here is we're doing commercial education for uh, a number of the world's kind of leading um, STEM students so far in the UK and all around the UK. But you know we're teaching we're teaching uh, our candidates how to think about business, how to think about customer needs, how to think about development pipelines, how to take things to market, how to assess markets. So there's kind of two 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 wins there, right? One is the direct technologies we're working on. One is the research that they join the program with. You know, one 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 is the set of deliverables that we try to to try to try to achieve over the nine months of the program. The second is, you know, real lifelong learning around what is commercialization, what are markets, what is business, and how does the world of business apply to their technical skills? You know, and from my view, that's where we get the really exciting things you're talking about, right? When we can actually teach people how to take greater volumes of innovation to market. Yeah, I think uh, it wouldn't be wrong to say that you are uh, in the business of transforming venture capital and venture accelerator business because this is sounds very very unique uh, in approach uh, and in in specific it looks very apt uh, for deep tech. So uh, you know, taking it up from there, uh, given your exposure to to so many bright minds that are working, what I would call as at the edge of uh, uh, deep tech uh, uh, innovation. Uh, what are the few areas, deep tech areas, uh, that you believe will cause disruption in the coming decade uh, for large, larger businesses, right? Uh, I mean, either through startups or through, you know, business model innovations or through uh, possibly uh, other larger companies adopting these technologies and getting ahead of their peers and competition. Yeah, I mean, the one that really comes to my mind over and over again, and one of the reasons I actually joined the program in my role is uh, quantum. You know, I think okay. um, quantum, you know, some people laugh and they're like, quantum is said to be kind of the drum and bass of computing. It's, it's always the next thing, but it never quite arrives, right? Um, right. Quantum has, uh, has quite a profound history. We're starting to see a number of advancements. However, uh, if you look at the pop scientific literature, it, it says we're still quite far. Now, my view was, and my view is much more now after having seen this up close for a few years, that, I mean, quantum, when it arrives, uh, number one, it will be worth it. It will be worth all of the time and all of the investment and everything it's taken to get there. Uh, and number two, the transformative power is probably far and beyond um, what we think it may be, right? I mean, I only have to go back to uh, something like the internet or mobile technology. You know, if you think about when the first mobile phones arrived, if you looked at those early mobile devices in the early 80s, uh, maybe even the mid-late 80s, 
to compare that to, to kind of the world of the iPhone and, and the Android device worldwide with, you know, always on broadband networks downloading at near gigabit speeds, when you think about the transformative power of that, not only to the technology, not only to the user, but also to the society, and then on the, the realm of big data, you know, I mean, that, that represents, in my mind, kind of a step change and a near uh, kind of apocalyptic shift in uh, where we are with technology and our story. And I think quantum will really be the same. And I think, you know, one summary point there is when I look at things like quantum chemistry, uh, quantum is going to move us from the realm of scientific discovery to the realm of scientific engineering. You know, there are problems that are so profound, so complex, that involve so many variables and, and you know, that are just so difficult to solve with, with classical computing and, and classical mechanics that I think when you have these quantum systems, they're, they're going to represent a, a force multiplier uh, that, that we, can, we can scarcely imagine you know, what we can do when we can start measuring and manipulating the world uh, at that level. Uh, you know, once again, I, I, I think there is a lot of work to be done there. I'm aware how much work there is to be done there, but I think it's more about the impact. You know, I think it's more about when you have these functioning quantum computers. Uh, I think there is probably a quantum arms race. You know, I know governments are very interested. I think we see more money, certainly in the United States, also in China, also in the European Union. Uh, going into this area, I think it's going to be an area of strategic national interest. Uh, I think we're seeing a lot of, of interest, not only from the tech corporates, but I think we'll see a lot of interest from, you know, from pharma, from materials, from manufacturing, um, you know, in a number of different areas. So I think that's probably the one that I see will have the most impact. Um, you know, there are some others. Sorry, go on. Yeah, but do you believe that quantum, uh, and, and this is just the... Uh, playing the devil's advocate here. Do you think in the next decade would we see the real impact of quantum or it's, it's at least a couple of decades or more away? Uh, I, I think you'll see the first, the first impacts within a decade. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, That's fascinating. I, I think, you know, I was listening to a podcast the other day. They were interviewing a quantum researcher building a quantum computer and his point was that you know, the zero to one problem in, in building qubits and kind of achieving functional results, that's where we are now. Uh, if you compare that to, to the transistor, you know, the, the, the fundamental base work on kind of getting the earliest versions working was very tedious, very complex, very high rates of failure. Once you start getting, once you crack kind of the initial you know, the initial set of problems and you start scaling, even the very early versions uh, will be extremely powerful. So even, you know, before we, we have, for, for example, it's a terrible comparison, but quantum computers on the desk, you know, as soon as you have reliable quantum computers at any scale, I think that's when you're going to start seeing the, the step change in transformation. Wow, that's that's interesting and exciting to look forward to. Uh, you were mentioning uh, some of the other technologies. What are those? Yeah, I mean, one of the ones that I think is, is, uh, is most exciting, and, and it may be anathema if you talk to venture capitalists, but I still see a lot of movement in it, and that's uh, big data, AI, ML, uh, that whole space. Uh, okay. Every year we see people coming to us with uh, new data sets they want to analyze, new uh, underlying 
uh, ground truths those data sets represent, no, new commercial potentials they want to explore. Something we see over and over again is um, measuring land use and changes in land use via satellite imagery. Uh, as satellite imagery gets more advanced with the advent of outfits like Planet Labs, you know, uh, you get new data sets. As you get new data sets, you get people uh, applying their work to those data sets. And, uh, you know, th there's, a very there's two very interesting books that both talk about the history of technology. One is um, called Paper by Mark Kurlansky, and the other is called The Technology Trap, uh, which is out of uh, Oxford University. And in each of those, they talk about how technologies develop, and then there are periods where those technologies can almost sit latently, where you've done some of the groundwork, yet you don't really see any kind of societal use or any immediate purpose and how uh, a lot of times there will be triggers within society that then go back and draw on kind of nascent technologies which have been developed but not necessarily adopted. And I think now that we're looking at things like climate change, we're looking at, you know, and I spent a lot of time in renewable energy and climate, uh, it's a subject that's very close to my heart. I don't think we've yet kind of truly quantified the disruption. I don't think we've actually seen the impacts uh, at scale. I think we're starting to. And furthermore, I don't think we've actually seen uh, a coherent global response around that. Now, what I'm seeing is as more data sets become available and as researchers come into their work more skilled up around things like AI and ML and working with large data sets, they're starting to uh, look at different opportunities around land use, land use policy, measurement, measurement of things like embodied carbon, oceanography, you know, and there's tons of people working on these things. So, you know, th this isn't like something that's unique, but I do see this whole huge movement of people who are coming in with algorithmic education, who are starting to look at images of the earth and different kinds of um, measurements in different ways and start to produce commercially viable inputs, right? And I think that's very interesting and very exciting. You know, once again, I think if you go to some of the corridors of Silicon Valley or even European technologies, say big data, is that a thing? I, I don't know about the tooling for it. I'm sure there's still scope to be done in the tooling, but I think in the actual use cases, uh, I think we're at the very beginning of a lot of very exciting developments. Uh, one of the other areas that's of perennial interest is blockchain. I mean, blockchain kind of ebbs and flows. Uh, we had an investor who, an angel investor who was reviewing some of our early teams one year and he said, wow, blockchain, you know, is that still a thing? That must have been 2019. And I said to him, I was like, you know, just because the Bitcoin price popped, uh, you know, if you take these mathematics students in, in, as an average, you know, at some of the top universities in the UK, they can, they can really study whatever they want. They can go wherever they want to go. And the fact that they're choosing to invest uh, their time, energy, and, and stipends in exploring blockchain, to me, that says there's more there. And um, I, yeah. am, I am constantly uh, inspired by where I see the blockchain teams going. I see them maturing year over year. That's not necessarily crypto, although it is. Uh, it definitely includes crypto. You know, I think there's a lot of room to run there. I think we've only seen the beginning uh, of tools that, institutional investors need um, to kind of measure, monitor, and, and invest in that area. I think we're at the edge of starting to crack some use cases. Uh, I think that area will become uh, more exciting as we see governments start to back digital currencies. 
Uh, and one area that I think it's impossible to get away from right now is health tech, uh, whether that's med tech, health tech, pharma, genetics, genomics, any of those areas. Uh, we have a huge representation of people from those areas. Um, obviously, as many of those technologies are regulated, uh, those are much longer burns. So those teams occupy potentially a different space in our program. We had one come out last year called Neurosalience. Neurosalience is looking at uh, using MRI scans uh, to detect dementia uh, much, much earlier. So we're talking decades earlier. Um, you know, I, I think that stuff is very, very interesting. You know, I think applying computer vision techniques and AI uh, into uh, medical care in that way, you know, I think that, that's a very interesting immediate example. And then we see the deeper stuff like Rocco and their, their work in quantum chemistry. Um, you know, I think genomics, obviously, with COVID and the vaccine development. Um, so I'm very bullish on that area as well. Exciting. Uh, uh, you know, you spoke about blockchain, you know, and uh, uh, talked about Bitcoin. Uh, in, in some ways, it would be, you know, comparing blockchain to Bitcoin, a blockchain success to Bitcoin would be, uh, you know, saying that the internet won't, won't work when the first portals bombed or, you know, when the uh, when MySpace, let's say, bombed and, and you would say social media won't work because they are essentially one is one is the technology and the other is just the uh, a platform built on top of the technology. Uh, you know, do you do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And more so, you know, I think really uh, none of these things should be treated in a vacuum, right? The reality is each wave of technology compounds on the previous wave, you know, so when you looked at desktop computing and then you attached all those computing to networks, right? Now you had networks of computers and then you had modems and you had, uh, you know, home computers that were connected over, over uh, random links and then you had home broadband. So those computers were connected constantly. Then you got user behavior where, you know, applications were expected to be available, whether people were at home or at work, and then they started using e-commerce, things like Amazon. Then you got the development of things like Napster, and then you got the iPod, right? Up until you have the flashpoint of the iPhone, which is essentially a single integrated computer that's always online, really it's giving you access to all of those services that you would come to, to use and rely on. The big difference was your previous experience was fixed to individual locations and your new experience was mobile, right? Uh, I think when you look at Bitcoin and blockchain, I think they are the evolutions of social media with, co with commerce attached, right? Like I think there's something very interesting about social media, which is social media uh, is driving volumes of transparency through society. I think it's driving new kinds of accountability. Of course, none of these things are unidirectional. Um, you know, I think as you push it forward, uh, there are also backlashes, there's new problems. However, when I look at Bitcoin and when I look at crypto, I mean, you're essentially building on top of the, the social networks, right? You're building on a lot of the social rules, you're using those channels to communicate. And you're essentially building, you know, the world's first kind of currency experiment that's been uh, on the back of global interconnected democratized social media, right? And I find that to be very interesting. I think there's something around innovation where you look at it and you're like, okay, well, if I have all these channels of social media and, you know, and they're public and they're private, they're image-based, they're audio-based, they're meme-based, they're video-based, you know, there's a, there's a whole array of communication styles. And you look at that and you think, 
What happens if I apply that logic to something like currency? You know, and, and, and I think those two, I think that's very interesting, you know, and I think, uh, I don't know if, you know, people all the time, they want to know if Bitcoin is going to be a success or failure. And certainly nobody can tell you that. I do think, I do think as an experiment, it's very interesting. And I think if you look at any experiment in the internet where you have 10 years under a singular platform with a singular community of developers uh, that is able to go that long in advance and really build an ecosystem around it, I would say those are the harbingers of things that we've gone on or things that we've seen that have gone on to be very major technological forces. Fair point, fair point. And, and uh, uh, I'd like to believe that, uh, you know, uh, having billions and billions of dollars of market cap, if that's not success, what else is uh, well, volatility trillion, aside? Right? I mean, it's up to yeah, the top of yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, it, it did sort of fall today, but, you know, uh, all those are, uh, you know, uh, ha- as I say, it's, it's, uh, it's not the every day that matters. It is where it, has, it is coming from as far as a technological uh, movement is concerned and, 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 and where it's going. I mean, from that perspective, blockchain uh, is not crypto alone. Blockchain also has uh, organizational uh, implications like uh, uh, for supply chain, for uh, data security and, and whatnot. And, and there's still being work done on the side chains, uh, the aspect of security, scalability, uh, you know, all and decentralization uh, to make sure that each of these three things can be balanced in a way that it has uh, what I would call as enterprise uh, applicability. Uh, uh, would, are you seeing the same across the, the, the various startups and, and PhDs that you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, blockchain, one of the most, I, I, I'm a big fan of the blockchain. And one of the areas where I see blockchain starting to make inroads, and I think where it'll make substantial differences are on government services, because there's a, there's a certain feature around the blockchain, which is the censorship proofness and the immutability of the transactions right. record, where when you look at, at public services, uh, even if it's a permission chain, so you only have certain entities that are allowed to write to it, um, the fact that everybody can read from it is very interesting. And I think one of the applications I see here is some of our, our colleagues work at a law firm here called Mishkondorea. And uh, they're building an AI practice there. And when you look at the blockchain, it has a direct analog over to the law, right? Which is you need people of certain standing to take courses to the, to take cases to the Supreme Court. However, those proceedings are public and they're visible for all, right? And, and, and the right. blockchain, I think, makes a very nice analog for that. And I think in the public, public sector, certainly, we see scope for it. In the private sector, I think there will be some very interesting examples where you have, you know, I gave a lecture about two years ago uh, in Vietnam about this, that when you look at uh, in business where you have different levels of the supplier ecosystem converging around common problems or common, uh, or common work packages, the blockchain makes a very interesting solution because it, it gives people visibility over the entire process while having the ability to vary the permissions of who can contribute and when, 
right? And, and I think that's very interesting from a supplier relationship. I mean, I think some of the, the Ethereum smart contract principles are extremely valuable in both society and business. I'm very bullish on Ethereum. Uh, I think that that smart contract framework will represent yep. a step change in a lot of things. Uh, I think overall, you know, one interesting, um, one interesting experiment has been done by some shipping companies looking at end-to-end -end tracking numbers. I mean, currently when you ship something around the world, each entity adds its own tracking number because it uses its own database, right? And so a lot of the world that we navigate as we navigate it now, essentially we're navigating it with the database tags of whoever we last touched or talked to. And with the blockchain, because it is open and because it kind of has these open source principles sitting behind it, you know, you do see a world where you can put something in, the, in, a, in, a, in a logistics ecosystem where it gets one tracking number at the beginning and then that record is appended onto as it makes its way around the ecosystem. And while, you know, I mean, if you're in the shipping industry, you may think, no, you know, my, my walled gardens are my competitive advantages. I think in reality, some of these things will be so efficient, they will pull the innovation forward regardless uh, of the perceived competitive dynamics. I, I totally agree with you on that and, and, and fantastic points and, and uh, use cases uh, shared there. Uh, let's, let's uh, you know, we are, we are already you know, towards the end of the podcast. So we want to get to this point. You know, you work with PhDs, you work with startups. Uh, you, you know, you, you of course, uh, you know, uh, had your fair share of uh, knowing uh, large corporates and working with some of them as well. Uh, where do you, uh, which are the three things that, CEOs of large companies today uh, can learn from startups and PhDs when it comes to deep tech and 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 leveraging deep tech adoption. How how what would be your uh, you know uh, three pointer uh, sort of uh, uh, re suggestion recommendation uh, you know advice uh, to la CEOs of larger companies who are currently evaluating how they would. Uh, leverage deep tech in their businesses? Yeah, I mean, my first point on that is um, in the world of data-driven optimization, um, our systems are getting better and better and better. And I, I think there is, you know, I know the impact of the pandemic globally has been terrible. And I know, you know, a lot of us have lost people uh, and we can never discount the human factor and the human cost of what has gone on here, you know. And so I will, I will pause for that for a very brief moment because we always have to remember that. And there will be people impacted by this for, for a long time to come. That being said, uh, in another way, the, the, the internet experiment worked, right? Uh, I think it's really safe to say that at one point, I remember reading the headline that half of humanity was at home under uh, stay-at-home orders. And, and that's worldwide. I mean, that is a lot of people. And I believe that's when India was under lockdown, uh, you know, yes. populations. Uh, what, what I find amazing is that we did it, you know. I mean, the supply chains kept flowing. I mean, we have seen major economic disruptions. However... You know, within the span of a year, we pretty much stopped the global economy. We stopped global travel. In a lot of cases, logistics has remained flowing. Uh, there's been economic damage, but there hasn't been wholesale economic collapse. Uh, and furthermore, we've gotten a virus off a new or a vaccine off a new 
vaccine platform that's now being distributed and showing extremely high efficacy, right? Like if that's not the victory of deep tech, I don't know what is. I don't know another time where you could pause the majority of the global economy and then unfreeze it a year later and people, you know, yes, we have lost a lot of people. Yes, there are impacts, but by and large, uh, the world has managed to be resilient and even move forward in some ways. Now, the reason for that is because there is so much technology everywhere, because so many systems are driven by technology. Now, to, 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 you, to, your, to my first point of your question, we have systems that are extremely optimized, right? Whether that's energy, logistics, manufacturing, agriculture, distribution, finance, whatever it might be, these systems are extremely optimized. And they are resilient and they are able to give us great answers and constantly better answers. We can make things better and cheaper and faster. We can make massive amounts of progress. Now, uh, those systems can only ever optimize what's known, right? Like you cannot, in my my view, you cannot optimize the unknown. And when you're dealing with deep tech, I think that your corporate leaders need to be very aware that the seats in which they sit, oftentimes if they're successful, they sit on top of massive optimization engines, right? Everything below them, especially if they're in heavy IT organizations, everything below them is being optimized in real time. That's where the profits are coming from. That's where the resilience is coming from, right? That's where the reach is coming from. That's where the scope, that is where the power is coming from. You know what I mean? It's like that that old elephant rider analog, which is, you know, the organization, the people in the organization are the elephant riders and the technology is the elephant and you can kind of guide the elephant, but ultimately the elephant is going to go where it wants to go. That being said, uh, you have to keep in mind the greater your powers of optimization, it's still optimization and it cannot point you in new directions. It cannot tell you what is coming tomorrow. It cannot tell you where the threats are coming from. It cannot tell you where the opportunities are coming from. That is the realm of human decision making. And so therefore, you know, I think as your technology capabilities become stronger and stronger, I do think leaders constantly need to remind themselves Early stage tech is early stage tech. The failure rates are still high. Yes, we are getting better at de-risking them. We're getting better at identifying them. We're getting better at venture selection. There is more venture. We're building those pipelines. That process is working. That process is not zero risk. It's not going to be zero risk. There are some parts of it which cannot be de-risked. And so therefore, innovation is still going to be dirty. It's still going to be costly. And if the past, the past is any view of the future. Those who continue to invest in it are going to reap the benefits. That's my first point. Sure. My second that point is, is that um, the next generation, uh, I, you know, I had a call with a major corporate this morning and we were running through one of our partners. We were running through the agendas and, you know, one of the things came up, uh, you know, what are we seeing? What can we expect? And sustainability came up. And it's interesting the way corporates treat sustainability, which is pretty much everybody for the last, you know, two generations has had uh, profitability beat into them first in the financial line items. And now you're trying to add on, you know, environments and uh, uh, social metrics and drivers and, and 
you know, uh, what do they call that? Uh, triple bottom line values and everything else. Uh, I think for this next generation, they are very smart. They are very capable. They are very aware of what's going on. They, you know, as we talked about with social media, they have access to more information uh, than you can even imagine. I heard a great quote on TikTok the other day, which was, you know, if you're, if you're in the world today, the way a 10-year-old sees the 90s is the way somebody who was 10 in the 90s saw the 60s. Um, and I stopped and I thought about that, right? Because if I looked back from the 90s to the 60s, that was a very specific view and the mentalities and everything that went along with that, right? Uh, I right. mean, there's, some, there's something about hearing hip hop like Dr. Dre and Eazy-E as oldies, which is really put, puts, your, puts you in time. This next generation, I mean, these, these, these students in the next generation, they are very good at technology. However, uh, they do not see, they, in my view, they do not see the ESG goals as being separate from the technology, right? They are not financial led. They are not necessarily technology led. They are seeing this stuff in situ in a greater world, right? They are seeing the cost benefits. They are growing up in a world where the climate is already changing. They are starting their technology careers in a world where there is no, you know, binary Cold War superpower driven uh, technological trajectory, right? They are in a world that is decentralized. They are in a world with a lot of challenges. They're in a world where trust in governments and other organizations is suffering. You know, they're in a world where there was a global pandemic and 10 years before that there was a financial crisis, right? So for them, sustainability is part and parcel of the technology. You know what I mean? It is inseparable. And so I see they are the kind of leaders who are going to respond to their future employers, their future partners, their future investors on that basis. That's the second thing. And the third thing is, uh, it's actually doesn't have very much to do with startups, but it has to do actually with a friend of mine who who has transitioned in between uh, startups and corporates a few times. So he started in in small business, he moved up to commercial banking, he he moved after that into, uh, he ran a video game startup for about five years, and now he's moved back into Amazon on uh, a larger video games role and watching what he's doing, I find one thing very interesting about Amazon is their internal corporate talent practices. And it seems like as Amazon's grown, what they've done, it looks like to me is effectively hybridize their corporate talent practices with that of an institutional corporate that is one of the world's largest businesses but maintaining a lot of that startup ethos and connection, right? And I think that, you know, when you talk about how do you hold on to that startup uh, vibe and that, that, that real startup push as the organization grows, I don't think you need to hold on to very much of it. I think startups and corporates are meant to do very different things in the world. However, I think the Amazon talent practices are very interesting because I think they're 360 degree views. I think they're weighting the talent in a very specific way. I mean, I can't say too much about it because I really don't know that much. But when I think about startups and when I think about startups and their trajectories forward, 
what really propels them. And I think part of what propels them is the technology. Part of what propels them is the market opportunity. Part of what propels them certainly is venture capital. But I think at the heart, it's culture. You know, I, I mean, I think there's something very interesting where some of the PhDs who join our program, the reason they want to start their own companies is they want to work on their own problems and they want to work on their own questions. You know, and, and now with today's financing methodologies, they have the ability to do that. And I think what's interesting about that is as they start these companies, they go back into their previous programs and they start recruiting from other PhDs, right? And right. I, you can kind of see that, which is if I'm a PhD, all things being equal, would I rather go to a corporate where the innovation pipeline seems slow, there's a lot of capacity, I like it, it looks pretty secure. On the other side, I can go work with people like me who have essentially been funded to do something that approximates the research I was doing before and work on these big questions and problems, right? And I really see a cultural dimension to that. And I see more of a translation of this kind of university lab culture growing into startups. You know, we already saw it with uh, the previous wave, right? Like coming out of high school and college dropouts, building things that kind of analogously look like campuses you know, meritocracies, you know, things that, that you know, transparency. Uh, with Amazon, I think they did a lot of things right, scaling those talent pipelines. I think that's part of their core strength. I can go all the way back to the companies that I'm seeing now, the startups coming out, where I think the ones that are making a lot of progress, one thing they do initially right is either intentionally or unintentionally, they focus a lot on those talent pipelines and create a cultures that are attractive to the next wave of employees. Fabulous. I, I love these three points. The first one was to focus on, uh, you know, technologies, not just of today, but of tomorrow that may have a higher failure rate, uh, sustainability and culture. I think it's, it's, a, it's a great three pointer for the large corporate CEOs. Nicholas, we've, we've run out of time, but it has been an absolute, absolute pleasure and an exciting uh, uh, conversation with you. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, our audience would not only be enlightened, but also will be intrigued and, and will uh, surely look up uh, Conception X and, and would look forward to possibly some of the greatest innovations coming out from uh, Conception X and hopefully more more people uh, you know come up with such programs because I I truly believe that uh, the combination of a scientist's mind and the entrepreneurial zeal and spirit could do wonders for this world. Thank you so much, Nicholas, for for coming on to Transformation Talks and and giving us your pearls of wisdom. Thank Great. you. Thank you, Rajiv. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Transformation Talks podcast hosted by Rajiv Dingra, founder and CEO of RDNX Network. Tune in next week for another interesting episode.